Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it, or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. Alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? Canada is the sixth largest music market in the world. Only the U.S., Japan, the U.K., Germany, and France are bigger. Which is not bad, considering that we're living right next door to the biggest exporter of popular culture in the known universe. And considering that, unlike Japan or Germany or France, most of our domestic music industry isn't isolated and protected because of language. I mean, the whole world consumes English-language music, right? What's the market for Japanese music outside of Japan or German music outside of Germany? Then there's the matter of population. Of those top six nations, Canada, with 36 million people, has the smallest number of people. Compare that to 66 million in both the UK and France and 83 million in Germany. Canada exports far more music to the rest of the world than we should. Every year, the export numbers grow bigger and bigger thanks to stars like Drake and The Weeknd, Justin Bieber, Alessia Cara, and a long list of artists that came before. Alanis Morissette, Sarah McLachlan, Celine Dion, Shania Twain, Rush, The Guess Who, and dozens and dozens and dozens of others. And maybe most important of all, Canada has a super strong domestic market. Canadians listen to and support Canadian music, and the country tends to be very proud of its homegrown talent. Just look at the national outpouring of affection for the tragically hip in the summer of 2016. But it wasn't always this way. There was a time when Canadian music was a synonym for substandard or not very good or bad. Canadians went out of their way to avoid Canadian music, unless, of course, it received a stamp of approval from music fans in the United States. That was the only form of validation the country would accept. That attitude, I'm happy to say, is pretty much extinct now. And the roots of our current musical nationalism, in many ways, can be traced back to the days of the alt-rock 90s. This is chapter 8 of our look at that decade, and we'll call this the Canrock Revolution. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the eighth episode in a series detailing the history of the alternative music of the 1990s. If the main American contributions to alt-rock were grunge and the punk rock revival, and if the UK's was Britpop, ours was Canrock that huge burst of new acts that continued throughout the decade, and an explosion that never really stopped. Canrock is a term that came into use with a book called Have Not Been the Same, subtitled The Canrock Renaissance, which detailed for the first time what happened to music in this country between 1985 and 1995. If you haven't read it, you should. Since its publication, Canrock has come to describe a large swath of music created in this country, from the Tragically Hip to Sarah McLachlan and from Sloan to the Cowboy Junkies. But before we can look at the Canrock of the alt-rock 90s, we need some perspective on exactly how difficult it was to get that far. 
we can't cover this topic properly without some deep history. So we need to talk about geography again. Like I said earlier, Canada is in a unique position in the world. We're right next to the United States. Not only do we share a lot of the same values and experiences as the U.S., but we also speak the same language. And when it comes to culture, there are plenty of similarities. This creates an issue, a big one. How could Canadians maintain a separate, distinct, and strong cultural identity when our neighbor to the south has 10 times the population and is the biggest economic engine on the planet? The answer was to create a series of laws and measures that protect Canadian culture from being overrun by outside forces. And some of those laws and measures involve music. We call this CanCon, which is short for Canadian content. CanCon is a quota system that requires radio and TV broadcasters to devote a certain percentage of whatever they broadcast to material that is at least partly created by Canadians, written, produced, presented, or contributed to by Canadians. Got that? Canada is not unique in this regard. Many countries have these quota systems. Australia has one, so does New Zealand, Mexico, South Africa, Nigeria, France, Ireland, Jamaica, Venezuela, Israel, and the Philippines also enforce some kind of rules involving homegrown talent. The United States does not have any content laws like this. They, frankly, don't need one because they're so big and powerful. Neither does the UK. Even though they're a tiny island in the North Atlantic, they're the only English-speaking country outside of Ireland for thousands of miles around, and that provides its own protection. CanCon has been very helpful, as we'll see in a minute, but it's also been very controversial for decades. What I'd like to do is explain where it came from, how it works, and what it succeeded at doing, and also how it all led up to the CanRock revolution of the 1990s. To understand the Can Rock explosion of the 90s, we have to go back to the very beginning of the modern Canadian music industry. Before 1970, there really wasn't any sort of music industry in Canada, at least compared to many other countries. Our infrastructure, well, well, we didn't have one. Most record labels were branch plant operations of foreign labels. We didn't have much in the way of recording studios or promoters or managers. We were, quite frankly, a musical backwater and our cultural self-esteem wasn't all that great. Any Canadian artists who wanted to make it knew that they had to leave. Neil Young, Jody Mitchell, Paul Anka, Leonard Cohen, all of our biggest and most promising artists beat a path for the United States. That was the only place that they could actually make a living. But then along came Expo 67 in Montreal. It was an amazing success, a coming out party for our 100th birthday. It had the interesting effect of raising our pride when it came to our culture and a number of people decided to do something. Some were people in private companies working within the music industry. One of those guys was Walt Grealis, the publisher of a radio and records industry publication called RPM. RPM was started in 1964 as a way to inform the radio and music industry about what was going on from coast to coast. Remember, we're dealing way pre-internet. RPM also established something called the Gold Leaf Awards. Grealis and his partner Stan Cleese believed that Canadian achievement in music needed to be recognized. The first Gold Leaf winners were announced in the December 28, 1964 issue of RPM. The top male vocalist that year was Terry Black. The top female was Shirley Matthews. And um, there really wasn't much more than that. There wasn't even a category for rock. The reception for the event was a wine and cheese affair attended by 39 people. 
In the late 1960s, there was a general consensus amongst both music industry types and certain people in government that if Canada was going to produce its own Beatles, its own Bob Dylan, its own Rolling Stones, something would need to be done. Okay, sure, groups like the Guess Who could make sort of a living by playing in front of 100 people on tours of northern Saskatchewan, but that really didn't make much of an impact on behalf of Canada on the world stage. One of the first things required was to level the playing field when it came to getting records by Canadian artists on the radio. Radio stations tended to play the big hits by international stars because, well, after all, that's what their audiences wanted to hear. Now, they did play some records by Canadian acts, often out of some kind of sense of duty to a local or national scene, but it was rare that a Canadian record would trouble the upper reaches of the charts. Unless, of course, it was a hit outside the country. Then that was a big deal. There was no money to be made in Canadian music. It wasn't that popular, didn't sell that well, at least compared to the foreign stuff, so record labels didn't bother much with homegrown talent. Then along came Pierre Junot, a product of a Jesuit school who had the same sort of social activist tendencies as his friend Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. He was the head of a new organization called the CRTC, a government body entrusted with looking after the broadcasting and telecommunications issues of the country. After consulting a number of people within the music and broadcast industries, he proposed a new set of rules that would require Canadian radio stations to devote no less than 30% of the music they played to Canadian artists. This gave birth to the first Canadian content rules for radio, which went into effect on January 1st, 1971. At first, this 30% rule only applied to AM radio stations. FM came later. The CanCon strategies can be looked at in two ways. First of all, this was a cultural strategy, a way to offer Canadian artists a chance at being heard. Second, and perhaps more importantly, it was an industrial strategy designed to create a Canadian-based infrastructure of record labels, recording studios, national booking agencies, all the things that you need to support music on a countrywide domestic scale. Radio hated this. They hated being told to play what they considered to be substandard amateurish music. And frankly, they had a point. If you played a typical Canadian record from, let's say, 1971, side by side with a foreign record of the day, let's just say that you could tell. Some radio stations went so far as to edit down dozens of Canadian songs to less than two minutes and then spin them all back to back between 11 p.m. and midnight in order to get their quota in for the day. Those were called beaver hours. Yeah, a little disparaging maybe, but that loophole was later closed. But all this was a very necessary step if there was to be any kind of Canadian music or Canadian music industry. Greater radio exposure turned into increased popularity of Canadian acts across the country. This meant more record sales. That meant more people getting into the business of setting up record labels. More record labels meant more recording studios and more tours, more needs for managers and agents and everything else. Yes, it was enforced listening. A lot of records made it onto the radio that really shouldn't have because they just weren't that good, especially through the early and mid-1970s. But quotas are quotas, and broadcasters had their licenses, licenses that depended on maintaining those quotas, and if they wanted to keep those licenses, well, the quotas had to be fulfilled. Radio didn't like it, but it was now part of their daily business. Now, remember the Golden Leaf Awards? They were officially replaced by a new National Canadian Awards show, and it was named the Junos after Pierre Junot, the CRTC head who came up with the CanCon rules. The first event was held on February 23, 1970. And while there was a lot of bad Canadian music on the radio in the 1970s, 
The CanCon rules also gave a boost to an astounding array of homegrown talent. Just on the rock side, we had Rush, April Wine, The Guess Who, Triumph, Crowbar, Teenage Head, Max Webster, Chilliwack, FM, Saga, and A Foot in Cold Water. They all ended up being Canadian success stories, and some even went on to international success. True North Records was set up by Bernie Finkelstein, a guy who hung around the Yorkville scene in Toronto. True North was unabashedly Canadian, and thanks to the CanCon quotas, a few of their acts broke through and had legitimate hits, artists like Bruce Coburn and Rough Trade. By the early 1980s, Canadians were listening to and buying much more Canadian music than they ever had. Our musicians, once given the chance, had caught up with the rest of the world in terms of sound and talent and production. That's what happens when you're thrown into the deep end of the pool with the best in the business. Local scenes began to develop and get bigger. Those who made it through the ringer of the local rock crowd sometimes managed to break through to a national audience. And once things developed nationally, there was at least a chance of attracting a worldwide audience. By the time we got to the middle 80s, there was a feeling that Canada really had something going on when it came to rock. Rush, April Wine, BTO, Loverboy, Triumph, Brian Adams, and a half a dozen others all released albums that had done extremely well domestically and internationally. And in some cases, they went multi-platinum in foreign territories. There were state-of-the-art recording studios. Domestic offices of major record labels were now investing in, nurturing, and promoting local Canadian talent. New organizations were established to help foster new talent. For example, there's Factor, the foundation to assist Canadian talent on records, founded in 1982. They take in money from broadcasters and provide grant assistance to musicians who apply for financial help. And we're talking about millions and millions of dollars annually. There's another similar organization called Starmaker. Then there's Videofact, another assistance organization that was created when Chum Limited established Much Music in 1984. It was a condition of its broadcast license that Much Music set up a fund to help artists make music videos. Basically, what this did was encourage the production of music videos in Canada by Canadian artists, which gave Much Music something to play. And here's another source of funding for Canadian music. When a radio station is granted a license, they have to provide something called Canadian Talent Development Funds. In exchange for being able to use the public airways to make money, it's expected that the station put something back into the music community. This can be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of dollars annually, all depending on the circumstances. And here's the thing. The radio station cannot just write a check to someone. The expenditure of Canadian Talent Development Funds, which are now called Canadian Content Development Funds, has to be administered by an independent third party that has been approved for this particular purpose. This is how something like North by Northeast and other music festivals get funded. They're spending CCD money that radio stations and other broadcasters are required to spend. Other music festivals work the same way. Then you have big contests where bands compete for a cash prize to further their careers. The money comes from the broadcaster, but it has to be administered in some way by a third party. And local award shows, same thing. Money comes from the broadcaster, but the money is spent and the evening is organized on their behalf by an independent outsider. All this is mandated money that is required by law to go from the private sector back into the music community. It is not optional. So no wonder musicians from other countries look at Canada and are envious of the support we give our artists relative to other nations, including, by the way, the United States. 
I've heard so many American artists tell me, man, this is what you do for your musicians? I'm moving to Canada. Here's one band that benefited from both Factor and Video Fact money. And they went on to have a pretty solid career, too. The Pursuit of Happiness with I'm an Adult Now, the original version. Once they got that record made, and once they shot a cheapy video for it, they landed a major label record deal and ended up doing very well. So, another CanCon success story. Now, by the time we got to the 90s, all the pieces of the puzzle were finally settling into place. The artists were being funded to make records and videos. Much music was showing Canadian music videos around the clock and across the country. The radio support was there, and the general across-the-board quality of the music being made was much higher. The last ingredient was demographic, and that's where we'll pick things up next. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. This is Chapter 8 of a series on the alt-rock of the 1990s, and this time we're focusing on how things changed in Canada, what's become known as the Can-Rock Revolution of the 90s. Now that we've got all the deep background out of the way, let's review the state of Generation X as the decade began. These were the sons and daughters of the baby boom, a huge demographic bulge that was entering their coming-of-age years when it came to music. And this is important. This was the first generation in the country's history to enter their coming-of-age years with a mature Canadian music industry at their disposal. They'd grown up with Canadian music. The CanCon rules for radio had been in place for almost 20 years. Much music had been around since 1983. They'd never known life without it. And they'd never really known a time when Canadian music equaled bad music. Canadian Gen Xers were swept into the alt-rock mindset, too. They wanted music of their own, not that of their older siblings or parents. They wanted music that spoke to them in the age of the first Gulf War and a terrible recession. And who better to speak to them than their own kind, fellow Canadians. Spirit of the West and Home for a Rest from their 1990 record Save This House, still a classic today. As the decade began, a bunch of Canadian groups started gaining traction. The Bare Naked Ladies started out as a bunch of goofy buskers, but then they ended up selling 80,000 copies of an independently released cassette. Demand was so big that chain stores like Sam the Record Man were forced to carry it. The Tragically Hip kept getting bigger with each album. By 1993, their first three records, Up to Here, Road Apples, and Fully Completely, were well on their way to selling more than a million copies each just in Canada, and every album thereafter, for the rest of the decade, would go multi-platinum. Blue Rodeo started as an old country band. All their 90s albums went multi-platinum. Same with Sarah McLachlan. 5440 had an amazing run of platinum records. And how did all this happen? It's radio exposure. It was video play. It was record company support. And most of all, a realization by fans that Canadian musicians were pretty damn good. That attitude was a long way from how we looked at things in the 60s and 70s. Now, 
Hi, Mother Earth, Not Quite Sonic, from their debut album, Dig, released in August of 1993. The early 90s were pretty amazing, with a long list of Canadian bands getting a shot at prime time. We had Moist, The Watchmen, Lowest of the Low, Sons of Freedom, Grapes of Wrath, Rhymes with Orange, Pure, Gandarva's, Limblifter. There was Pluto and Jail and Doughboys and Rusty and Sloan. Most of these bands were able to carve out nice livings as domestic artists. But there were those who busted out internationally. Winnipeg's Crash Test Dummies was one. Their first three albums all went platinum in Canada, while their second sold two million in America. We talked about Alanis Morissette on a previous episode. Jagged Little Pill has sold more than 30 million copies worldwide. And Our Lady Peace not only sold a million copies of their clumsy album in Canada, but another million in the U.S. There were a couple of other factors in the rise of Can Rock in the 1990s. One had to do with music festivals, and the other involved a particular series of CDs. Here is a crucial thing about the 1990s, something that cannot be underestimated. Access to music was extremely limited. This still was the pre-internet, pre-iTunes, pre-MP3 years. Okay, sure, you could rip your music to your computer, but hard drives were small. CD burners and blank CDs were expensive. The best anyone could do was make mixtapes on cassette, which was a very time-consuming process. We were left listening to the radio, or you could watch much music. And here's another key thing. Much music had a virtual monopoly on the video market. MTV was banned in Canada, literally illegal. The only competition they had were the occasional video shows shown on networks after school or late at night. And because of all the content quotas, Canada was, for all intents and purposes, a closed system, a walled garden when it came to getting music through the usual media channels. That meant that unless you lived near the American border where you could pick up American stations, Canadian listeners and viewers were guaranteed a steady diet featuring a minimum of 30% Canadian content. And once exposed... We decided that we liked it, and we bought a lot of it. The once-hated quotas had created a virtuous circle. Exposure led to demand. Demand led to more music. More people were inspired to take up instruments. The number of recording studios grew. The number of indie record labels increased. We had more managers and agents and promoters and venues. All of this created more money. And in retrospect, it was pretty good. How much demand was there? Well, so much that Canadians had a number of touring music festivals every summer. The idea of an all-Canadian, or at least mostly Canadian, summer alt-rock music festival can be traced back to the first Edgefest show in 1987. By the early 1990s, Edgefest was an annual thing. In 1995, there were four Edgefests, one for each summer-long weekend. Then, from 1997 to 1999, Edgefest went national, playing eight cities across the country. And most of those lineups were Canadian. Our Lady Peace, I'm Mother Earth, Finger Eleven, Gob, Sloan, Matt Good. There was international content, Green Day and the Foo Fighters, for example. But for the most part, the foreign took a backseat to the Canadian. Like the Tea Party. Tea 
Party, who made a regular appearance on many Edgefest shows in the 1990s. And there were more Canadian road shows. The Tragically Hip headlined another roadside attraction in 1993, 95, and 97. Tour mates included Canadian performers like Daniel Lanois, Spirit of the West, and the Rio Statics, but they also brought along Midnight Oil, Blues Traveler, Matthew Sweet, and Cheryl Crow. Then there was Sarah McLaughlin's Lilith Fair shows in 1997, 1998, and 1999. This was an international tour, but also featured lots of Canadian content. And Our Lady Peace went out with their Somersault Festival in 1998. That lineup included I Mother Earth and the Gandarvas, as well as international flavor from Garbage, The Crystal Method, and Eve Six. Oh wait, hang on. Back up. On Chapter 1 of this series of the alt-rock of the 1990s, we talked about how much money was flowing through the record industry back then. This was the golden age of the compact disc. Record stores were jammed, margins were high, sales were good, and this applied to Canada too. And this was the era of the CD compilation. Radio stations cut deals with record labels to issue special compilations of new material. Again, we have to remember that the idea of burning CDs was still really, really new. It was just much easier to buy a CD compilation. The most successful of all the CD comps was the Big Shiny Tune series from Much Music. Starting in 1996, a new collection of rock songs appeared every year. The curators at Much, along with a rotating series of major label partners, strove to strike a balance between big hits, mid-range artists, up-and-comers, and obscure acts. These collections were insanely popular, selling hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies each just in Canada. The highest selling volume was the third, released in December of 1997, and for a while it was the third highest selling album in Canadian history since SoundScan started measuring sales in 1995. Oh, sure, people came for the international songs, but they also stayed for the CanCon, like this. Age of Electric with remote control from their 1997 album Give a Pest a Pet, and a track on the third edition of Big Shiny Tunes. The 90s were a very, very good period for Canadian music. Many acts survived long after the decade ended. The Tragically Hip, Sloan, Our Lady Peace, Sarah McLaughlin, Tea Party, Matt Good, many others. Others broke up, like I Mother Earth and the Rio Statics and Lowest of the Low, only to reform later due to public demand. But the momentum created by the Can Rock Revolution never faded. Canadians continue to make great music. The country continues to export more and more music to the rest of the world every year. And Canadian music fans continue to support their own. Downsides? Well, Canada is no different than any other country because the amount of money just isn't there for certain things anymore. But overall, the Canadian music scene remains insanely healthy. And largely because of its coming-of-age during the 1990s. We have one more episode in this nine-part series on the 1990s, and we touched on it a little bit just a few minutes ago. We will go into detail on the music festivals of the decade. There were so many, and they were so important to the growth of alt-rock that we just can't leave them out. Some of these festivals existed before the 90s. Others were born during the decade for the express purpose of stoking the fire of the alternative revolution. And you're probably thinking of some of the names of these festivals right now. We'll go through everything on Chapter 9 of the 90s. 
Until then, you can binge on the podcasts. Just search for Ongoing History of New Music on iTunes and you'll find all of them. They're all free, of course. You can also find me at my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it every day and also put out a nifty daily newsletter with all kinds of cool stuff. And you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll see you next time for a wrap-up of the series on the 1990s. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.